Well, good morning. Welcome again to Fellowship of Grace. Glad that you are here with us this morning. And uh, man, it really turned warm, didn't it? Wow, it was crazy this week. Uh, I was going to start off this morning by telling you a little story here, and uh, I mentioned to somebody that it was, it was kind of a joke, and they said, wow, that's, that's interesting. You never tell jokes any other time. I thought that was kind of harsh. But uh, anyway, I, I heard a story this week about a priest and a rabbi who were in a car crash, and it was a really, really bad car crash, and uh, both of their cars were completely demolished, but amazingly, neither one of them was hurt. And after they crawled out of their cars, the rabbi says, so you're a priest, that's interesting, I'm a rabbi. Uh, wow, just look at our cars, there's just nothing left, but we're both unhurt, that's just a miracle. This must be a sign from God that we should meet and be friends and live together in peace. The priest replied, oh yes, I agree, it's a miracle that we survived and we're here together. And here's another miracle, says the rabbi, my car is completely destroyed, but this bottle of wine didn't break. Surely God wants us to drink the wine and celebrate our good fortune, he said, handling, handing the bottle of, the, of wine to the priest. The priest nods his head in agreement. He opened the wine. He drank half of it and hands it back to the rabbi. The rabbi takes it and puts the cap back on. Aren't you going to have any, asked the priest. Not right now, says the rabbi. I think I'll wait until after the police report is made. I thought that was kind of good. So just a little forethought there. I thought that was interesting. I thought that was an interesting story. Well, I'm glad you're here this morning, and I'm excited about where we're at in the book of Acts, as uh, some of you uh, missed last week, because of course, uh, all of our church was on vacation last week, and uh, thank you for the 14 of you who were here, that was kind of interesting, no, it was a lot better than that, but wow, it was just crazy, it's all like our whole church went on vacation last week, it was crazy. Uh, but uh, we, we saw last week really a great turn of events, because as we've been studying through the book of Acts, and talking about the gospel advancing, uh, we saw a big advance last week. Uh, because what we saw last week was uh, Christianity, the following of Jesus as Lord and Savior, uh, went from being a sect of the Jews, a sect of Judaism, where all of the followers were Jews. We saw that it broke into uh, the Gentiles, those who are not Jews. And so this is a huge thing. This is a big deal for the church. And so uh, that was just a, 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 a giant uh, move forward uh, for the faith and for inclusion for all people. Um, but uh, at the same time, uh, we're going to see today some things that happen uh, that really advance it even farther, even more than just a few Gentiles receiving Christ. Uh, today we're going to look at how the church advances uh, through the church at Antioch. And we're going to actually skip uh, Acts uh, 11, verses 1 through 18 for now. We're going to come back to that next week. It's kind of a review of chapter 10, but a retelling of that story. But we'll talk about that and why next week. Uh, but this week I want us to start with verses uh, uh, 19 through 30, and I want us to look through this passage. I think there's some great uh, things for us to see historically uh, that the church was going through, but some great application things for us also. So let's read through the passage once, and then let's come back and take it apart a little bit. So Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 30, here's what it says. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. 
and a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So we see a lot of things going on here, but the church uh, at Antioch is basically birthed here. I want us to go back and just take a look at verses, uh, um, uh, well, I don't know, the first couple of verses there, like that, 19 and 20. And uh, pick this apart a little bit. I think there's some really good principles for us to see here. So pay really close attention. I like to read the scripture through once to just, uh, without interruption, but I might interrupt a few times as we read it back verse by verse because I think there's some important things to point out. So let's go back and pick it apart a little bit. Verses 19 and 20, we'll start there. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. Now, if you remember back in Acts chapter 7, uh, uh, Stephen was killed. He was martyred for his faith. He was stoned. And this started the persecution that scattered the believers. It was... It was uh, catastrophic to them. It, it was the way that God was going to kind of push them out of Jerusalem. If you remember going back to Acts uh, 1.8, we saw there that Jesus told them sp- specifically, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, you'll be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria, and you'll be my witnesses to the end of the earth. And the fact was at that point, they were all pretty happy just hanging out in Jerusalem together. And so God allowed this persecution to come that scattered them everywhere. And so we see here that what Satan meant for evil, God uses for his good. Folks, this is, a, this is a great principle. This is a principle we see over and over in life. I can't imagine what Satan was saying the day after the crucifixion. Ha ha, he's dead! We win! It's over! I've crushed him! The Messiah is gone! And yet, three days after that crucifixion, he rose from the dead. You see, Satan means evil things for our life. He wants to destroy us. He wants to discourage us. He wants to get us sidetracked from really what we should be doing in life. But God has this incredible way to take these things that Satan means for evil and to destroy us. God has a way of turning them around and making them beneficial for his kingdom and for us. Now, while these people did run away from Jerusalem, it was interesting that they didn't stop preaching. You ever put that together? They ran preaching about Jesus. They never stopped. What Satan meant to scatter and lose, Christ designed to scatter and use. You know, God is in the life business of redeeming our failures and bringing good out of tragedy. He just does that. I don't know if any of you um, uh, watch America's Got Talent, but there's a young man on this year that I'm, I'm kind of pulling for. He's a, a young man in his early 20s who uh, was injured playing softball. 
Ball took a bad hop and hit him in the throat. Now he has nerve damage in his throat, and he has a bad stutter, and it can't be fixed. And so this young man got up, and he's a comedian. And he was really, he was hilarious. I remember one of his jokes, he said, uh, he said, you know, one of the things I hate is when I, when I, when I, when I you know, the drive through because you got to talk into that box, and you get to repeat stuff, and it's just hard to do. I don't know why I work there. <laughs> and so this young man who's had this really debilitating kind of injury, um, it's done two things for him. One, he's going to be a fantastic comedian, I think. Uh, very clean stuff, but really funny. And two, in the early story about his life, you know, before they, he, he, has, uh, he does this thing on the stage, uh, he said something very interesting. He said, you know, before this happened to me, I would have never talked to somebody like me. I was a jerk. And so it's really cool how God has changed his whole view of life and his view of people because of this injury. Folks, God wants to do those kind of things in our life. As you're thinking about the things in your life that are tragedies, that are horrible things that have happened, uh, what Satan means for evil, God wants to use for his good. The second thing we saw in this passage was this. The word was preached to both Jews and Gentiles. Now, the Jews came from Jerusalem, and they were scattered north to Antioch. And I'll show you on a map here uh, in just a moment where that's at. But it says that Gentile believers came from Cyrene and Cyprus, and they preached to the Greek-speaking non-Jews in Antioch, the Hellenists. Now, there's some debate over whether these Hellenists were all Jews or whether some of them were uh, also Gentiles. And um, if you look in, in chapter 15 later, we'll get to that place uh, when they're debating about Gentiles in the church. And we see that the church at that time, at least, has uh, uh, Gentile believers in Antioch. So we're going to assume that they're probably uh, Gentiles here. So they have been in, included into the body. So the word was preached to both Jews and Gentiles. And just to kind of show you a little bit uh, where that's at, here's Jerusalem down here at the bottom. You know, I've been, I've been waiting a year to use that little pointer thing. Here's Jerusalem down here at the bottom. You know, and, and Acts 1.8 says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem. And when you get too comfortable there, I'm going to let a little persecution come and spread you out to Judea and Samaria. And then when you get comfortable there and, and the persecution keeps going, some of you are going to travel all the way up to the city of Antioch. And while the, the Jewish Christians came from uh, Jerusalem up to Antioch, uh, the Bible said there that from Cyrene, which is out over here basically in North Africa where current Libya is, uh, they came from North Africa from Cyrene through Cyprus and then to Antioch. And so everything's kind of moving kind of towards Antioch there. The last thing I want you to see in this passage that we just read was this. Church planting and missions always starts with strategic evangelism. Always starts with strategic evangelism. Every new work should start with evangelism that is very strategic in its nature. In other words, how do we go and start this new work uh, by, by including new believers? How do we go and lead them to Christ? In fact, we're going to see later through Paul's missionary journeys, that he follows a seven-step strategy almost exclusively in planting churches. And it always starts with strategic evangelism. 
Every single church starts with him going to a place and proclaiming Jesus as the Lord and Savior, the one true Messiah, and leading people to follow Jesus. That's where it all starts. And so uh, we'll talk later about how that affects us and how that affects our strategies. But I wanted you to see that, that here before this church, Antioch even gets off the ground. There are Christians going there from several different directions, going to this large city and leading people to Jesus. Let's go back and see what it says in verse 21. It says, And the hand of God was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Here we see that the Holy Spirit was working through men, and it caused many to turn to Christ. It says, the hand of the Lord was with them. Now, isn't God always with us? Of course he is. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. Isn't he actually living in the hearts of the believers through his Holy Spirit? Of course he is. He go, everywhere we go, there he is. All right? But this is specific. It's saying the hand of the Lord was with them. God's hand was moving them. God's hand was, was in a sense, directing them and, and leading them. Listen, never forget, we talk about this a lot here, but never forget this. God is the only one that can change a man's heart or woman's heart. But God has chosen to use men to be his messengers. Uh, God doesn't write it in the sky much. Uh, God doesn't deliver uh, Bibles from the heavens very much. But the reality is, folks, neither you nor I can change a person's heart. As many times as I pray for someone, as much as I, I, I pray for their repentance, as many times as I share the gospel with them, I cannot do anything to make them make the right choice. I wish I could. I wish I could. But God has designed us with the ability to choose for ourselves. But I want you to understand, even though God is the one that changes hearts, uh, we should never stand back too far and say, well, it's really up to God. You know, let, let God work it out. I'll just stay back here. I'll keep my mouth shut. I'll just do my own thing in my little closet here and let him do his thing out there. I'll just not get in his way. That's not how God wants to do things. He wants to use us to bring people to himself. And so it's both with the Holy Spirit knocking on a person's heart and the message of a man delivered uh, uh, from God that comes together and draws a person to Christ. God changed these men and women's hearts in this passage. But first, the Christ followers of Jesus had to travel and preach to them or they would have never known. So let's always make sure to, to understand, and I don't, want to, uh, I don't want to minimize God. <laughs> it's the last thing I want to do. Uh, and when I use the word partnership, I don't mean an equal partnership. But in essence, we work in a, as a, like in a partnership with God. He wants to, he's, for some reason, he's chosen to use us to be his messengers. But he's the one who acts on a person's heart. He is the one who draws them to himself. He is the one that makes the message make sense to a sinner who is far from God. So let's always make sure that we keep that balance and that we understand that God is the initiator, God is the, the he's the closer, he, it's all about him, he just for some reason has chosen to use us to participate in that process. Let's look now at Acts 11, verses 23 through 24. 
says, The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. We see here that Barnabas was sent from Jerusalem to encourage the church at Antioch. You know, when the the church in Jerusalem heard that a great number of people had come to Christ in Antioch, they decided to send somebody. We don't see any uh, report of an argument. We don't see any report of a disagreement of any kind. All we see is that they sent Barnabas. Why would they send Barnabas? Because his name literally means son of encouragement. He, He was an encouraging guy. Now, this was his spiritual gift, and the church knew that. Why? Because he had been using his spiritual gift in the, in the church in Jerusalem. They knew who he was. They knew what he was like. And they said, this is the guy we need to send. This is the guy we need to send to these new believers to encourage them, to excite them, to make sure they stay on the right path, to make sure they stay committed. Here's the point, guys. How will we know where to send you? How will we know where to help you serve the body if you don't serve and we see your gifts? Sitting there in that chair, if I didn't know anything else about you all and I had to figure out what your spiritual gifts were based on how you looked, I would, I would never get that. I mean, that's impossibility. Where do, we, where do we confirm our spiritual gifts? By serving And we see that we're drawn to certain things. You know, there are people in our congregation, uh, they don't mean to be doing it. They're just acting out with their spiritual gifts. Uh, For instance, if we were here and and after the last service, we had to put up these chairs for some reason because we were having an event in here. Uh, uh, Some of us would start putting away these chairs, maybe uh, Derek and I and a couple of other leaders in our church. And then there'd be two or three other people that see what's going on and they don't ask, they don't, they don't contemplate, they, don't, they, just, they just come and help. Now I know at that point they probably have the spiritual gift of helps or the spiritual gift of serving, or maybe they're just mature enough to act in a way that's beyond their spiritual gifts, and they do it anyway. But the reality is, folks, they knew who Barnabas was because he had been serving the body already, and they wanted to send this encouraging guy to the church in Antioch. Let's continue reading. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. So Barnabas goes, he sees how many people are are Christians, and he decides he needs help. Church planting and church growth must have a specific and strategic plan for discipleship. Barnabas gets there and he goes, holy cow, there's too many of them. Uh, Look how many people have become Christians. I can't disciple all these people. Uh, How am I going to do all that? So he says, I need to immediately go get some help. So he goes to Tarsus and gets his buddy Saul. And he brings him back. Now that was a really humble thing for him to do. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I want you to understand who these guys are. That was a really humble thing for Barnabas because, listen, Saul was a much better speaker. 
Saul was a much better teacher. Barnabas was a good cheerleader, but Saul was a guy that could really disciple people. I mean, he wrote half the New Testament. And, and this was not about Barnabas being the head guy there. Barnabas did something really profound. He said, you know what, I'm willing to get some help from somebody who might overshadow me because I love the body more than myself or my ego or my position. One of the things you need to look for in church leaders, whether it's pastors, servants, vocational pastors, volunteer pastors, whatever, is people who will put the body ahead of themselves. People who will sacrifice for the body because they love Christ's church more than they love themselves. So he goes and he, he gets uh, uh, Saul. And what do they do? They disciple the, the church for over a year. Wow. That's incredible. That's incredible. It took him over a year to disciple these people. So not only evangelism, but also discipleship needs to be a part of church planting and church growth. It's strategic. The Bible never says to go and make converts. It only says to go and make disciples. And so discipling these new Christians was an incredibly important thing to do. And so Barnabas gets Saul, they work together, and they disciple this body for over a year. What is the result What is the result of discipling people? It's the last half of verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. What's the result of discipleship? Christ-likeness. How do I know when I'm fully discipled? Although none of us is completely 100% fully discipled. How do I know I'm on the path to being fully mature? I start to look like Jesus. Now, we don't know, according to the scriptures, uh, whether this was self-induced, as far as the name goes, or whether it was thrust on them by the culture. Uh, Different Bible scholars have a different stance on this, and actually the scriptures don't say. They don't say clearly whether these people just acted so much like Jesus, the people from the outside began to say, man, those people were just little Christ's up there. Or it doesn't matter if they decided to say, you know, we want to act like Christ so much, we are acting like Christ so much, we we want to call ourselves now Christians. And, and, you know, another important part of this is uh, they were no longer Jews and Gentiles as separate. They were all together as Christians. So it really doesn't matter which way it is. There was no argument from the society because the, the name is stuck for 2,000 years, right? They were basically being called little Christ. And the thing about that is, it doesn't say anywhere that they were being called little Christ as individuals. It said that they were being called that as the collective. In other words, people outside of the church and inside the church were all saying, look at this group, what a bunch of little Christ they are. Now, I was trying to think of a way to help you understand and, and clearly get in your mind kind of what this name means. Uh, you know, there was a movie that came out in 1999, an Austin Powers movie, and 
Dr. Evil, played by Mike Myers, had a clone uh, named Mini-Me, if you remember. Or if you've never heard of that, that's probably best. But anyway, (laughs) the point being that the believers that were following Jesus were so much like him, so much like him, they said, hey, look, those people in that church look just like the one they're following. I can hardly tell the difference. Those, those people of, remember what they were called up to this point? The way? People following the way? Those people from the way, we need to call them Christians from now on because they look just like their, their, their leader, Jesus. They're doing the things he does. They're saying the things he said. They're living the way he lived. They're just like him. What, what a great compliment it would be if somebody came through those doors on a Sunday and sat, as most guests do, in the back row, and they say, wow, just look around this room. Look at the way they interact with each other. Look at the way that they do things. I can tell, man, they're, just a, they're like a bunch of little Jesuses. That would be probably about the highest compliment our church could ever get and something we need to think about. Let's finish by looking at verses 27 through 30. It says, Now in these days prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea, and they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Here we see that the church at Antioch sent sacrificial financial assistance to the Jerusalem church through Barnabas and Saul. Now, why do I say sacrificial? Because it says there that everybody gave according to how they were being led. There was no, you know, there was no uh, uh, force. Uh, There was no forced communism or socialism here. None of that kind of stuff going on. Basically, they said, hey, listen, as God leads you to give, we want you to give. Here's why it was sacrificial. Did you notice in the passage where the famine would hit? The whole world. There's going to be a worldwide shortage of food. Now, what would smart people do at that point? They would take up a collection and do what with it? Put it in the bank. Let's bank this so that when food gets scarce, we can, we can buy it and, and feed our congregation. But see, they were better than smart. They were generous. They were sacrificial. They said, hey, uh, this church in Jerusalem has ministered to us in a great way. Uh, they sent to us Barnabas. This guy has come, he's gotten help, and, and he's, he's discipled us all. We want to minister back to them. And so let's take an offering and let's sacrifice our own money to help them during the famine and risk going hungry. Folks, now that's pretty sacrificial. That's pretty sacrificial. Thinking of others before ourselves is a pretty quick way to get a reputation of being a little Jesus. Now, I think it's, it's, not a, it's not a coincidence that God does these things in his timing. As most of you know, our church just sold this corner piece of property to Quick Trip. We closed on it last week. And we have several hundred thousand dollars put into our account. 
something to think about. There's been no decisions made for that big sack of money. By the way, when I went to close, I asked if I could get it in 20s. They said no. Uh, but here's something we need to think about. Uh, we can sit around and we can think of a lot of strategic ways to use that to grow the kingdom right here at Fellowship of Grace. But we might need to think about the Christians in Antioch and the fact that even when they knew they were going to go without, possibly, they gave to those who administered to them. Something to think about. We won't have that meeting here today. But I want you to be thinking, because I don't think what God would want us to do would be to be blessed beyond what we thought we would ever be blessed financially, and then to become hoarders. I don't see that in the New Testament anywhere. Do we need to be wise with the money? Of course. But let's just think about that. And we'll talk about that another time. So what are the application takeaways for this passage? Well, first this. God can turn any tragedy or evil in your life into his good if we will let him. Folks, God is just waiting to redeem things and people and issues and circumstances. He's waiting to do that in our lives. If we will let him. What do you mean by if we will let him? Well, one time there was a a soap manufacturer walking with a pastor. He was his neighbor. They were walking together. And the soap maker, he complained about religion and faith. And he talked about how it doesn't fix the ills of the world uh, you know, there's all these Christians running around, and, and still there's hunger, uh, still there's evil, still there's violence, still there's all these things going on in the world. And he asked the pastor, what good is it? I mean, really? Uh, for all intents and purposes, what good is religion and faith if it doesn't change the world? As they were walking, the pastor saw a, a child playing in the street, and he was covered in mud and dirt. And he said, look at that child. Look how filthy he is. What good is soap if there are still dirty children in the world? And the soap manufacturer said, well, you have to use it. Right! Right! You have to use it. Folks, some of you, some of you are are practically debilitated by a circumstance or a tragedy that has happened in your life. And I don't want to minimize. Some of you have been through tragic losses. The loss of loved ones through death. Uh, The loss of your own health. The loss of your job. You've been through very difficult circumstances. But folks, if we sit around and lick our wounds and complain and and let it just eat our lunch, we become uh, no use to the kingdom of God. Folks, turn that over to him. Beg God to somehow make this horrible, tragic, terrible circumstance in your life, turn it around as only he can do. Folks, he can do that better than your greatest strategy. There is a, there is a, 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 a sense of just saying, God, I just, I just want to release this to you. I don't know how to fix it. I don't have a strategy. I don't know how to make this right. I don't know how to get over this. I don't know how to uh, keep this from eating my lunch the rest of my life. But he knows. He knows. And so if you'll just turn it over and say, God, I just, I just give it up to you. 
And you keep telling him, I'm waiting for you to do something good with it, God, because I don't know how. I promise you in time, he will do that. Be patient. Two, church planting and growth strategies must include strategic evangelism and intentional discipleship. Whether we start a new church, whether we plant a new church here or in the Philippines, or whether we're growing our existing church, evangelism and discipleship have to be significant parts of that strategy. We need specific plans. We need to have intentional execution. Now here at Fellowship of Grace, if you are a member here, if you've been attending for a while, you understand that that one of our uh, evangelism strategies is upward sports. It's not a sports ministry. If you're tired of hearing this, I'm sorry. I'm going to say it about a million more times. Upward sports is not a sports ministry to get kids involved in sports. It is an evangelism strategy. It is a way to connect with, with families in the community who are far from God and share with them the love of Jesus. Share with, love their kids as we teach them how to play basketball. Share the gospel with them at halftime. Share the gospel with them at, at practices. And lead them uh, to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's what it's about. That's part of our strategy. Of course, one of our strategies is always that you share Jesus with your friends and family. That you have a good church that you can bring them to. And people here who will partner with you to share the gospel with them. If you uh, feel like you can't do that yet. But listen, just tell them how Jesus has affected your life. You don't have to be a Bible scholar. You don't have to be a theologian. All you have to do is be somebody who's experienced Jesus. And of course, our discipleship. We disciple people through community groups. We have small groups that meet during the week, and that's a great way to connect with people and to to grow in your faith. And then we also have core groups that meet just two or three, four people together whose main focus is to grow in Christ and be discipled, to disciple one another, to be discipled by others. And so we have those strategies. We have those uh, intentional things to do. You just got to get plugged into them. The last application takeaway for today is this. And it's really a question. Who would others say is your mini-me? If other people in your life got the chance to decide who your mini-me was, who would it be? Or even if we gave you the chance to decide, would others argue about your decision? Would they laugh when you tell them? And I just don't mean by looks, but I mean how we act, how we are. You know, I would like to think that others would think that my choice of a mini-me is Dr. Indiana Jones, you know, ruggedly handsome, adventurous, courageous, all those things. But reality would probably not let me call Indy very long. It would probably be more like Rick Moranis from the Ghostbusters. I know that. I know who I am. I'm okay with that. Okay? But here's the point. Here's the real point, folks. Here's the real point. Are people shocked when they find out that you call yourself a Christian? Or do they have an attitude that says, yeah, that seems about right. I kind of figured that. I thought you looked kind of like that guy you follow. That doesn't surprise me at all. How do they react when you tell them? Folks, as our culture continues to move south, and I don't mean south as a direction, I mean south as a direction. As our culture continues to move that direction, 
it is going to be less and less popular to be a follower of Jesus. It is going to be less and less comfortable to be a true follower of Jesus. But I hope when people see me, they will not be surprised or shocked to know that I'm a follower of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus, the way the Bible defines it. And so let's remember who we're following. Let's remember that the gospel that saved us is the gospel that will change us. You know, Jesus died on the cross to pay for our sins, not just so we could go to heaven, but so that he could live in us and transform us right here, right now, and we could be his representatives here on the planet. So let's not forget that. Let's be his mini-me's. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that always guides us and leads us. Father, thank you for the opportunity to just uh, read it, study it, understand it to some degree. Father, we pray that you will help us. God, we know that on our own, we are nothing. We can't do anything that really has eternal value on our own. But Father, we also know that when we give our lives to you, when we, when we ask you to forgive our sins, we repent from our sins, and we, we, we turn our lives over to you, we give our life to you, that you can do incredible things in us and through us. Father, transform us to the place that others are not shocked to see we are your, your followers, that others are not surprised to know that we love Jesus. Father, help us to really live like little Christs, not in a haughty or, or egotistical way, but in a humble way to just be like him. Father, help us to be generous. Help us to be generous with our, our own finances, with our church finances, and with our lives, with our spiritual gifts. Help us be generous by serving the body. Lord, you've put those spiritual gifts in our lives so that we can serve the, bar, the body as Barnabas did. Help us to live those things out. And Father, as always, we just thank you, thank you, thank you for your Son who changes everything in our lives. Thank you for this church. Help us uh, to be a light and salt to this community who needs to see you desperately. This is a very dark community. It's a very dark part of the state. And it's getting darker. Darker. 